Okay. So again, this morning I'm going to be uh, going over the importance, the the biblical basis for and importance of local church membership. And then, Lord willing, next week for the second class, we'll be looking at our philosophy of ministry here at Grace Bible Church Plantation. In other words, what what we believe as a church and why we believe it and what we do as a church and why we do it. And then in our third class, we'll be looking at our mutual ministry responsibilities. That is, our responsibilities to you as a leadership. In other words, what you can expect from us as a leadership. And then your responsibility as a church member to one another in the body as well as towards the leadership. In other words, what we can expect from you as church members. And then in the final class, we'll be looking at the issue of biblical baptism. What, what does the Bible teach on the issue of baptism? And so that's basically a brief overview of what we'll be looking at over the course of the next four weeks. Now, if you have a desire to be a member of Grace Bible Church Plantation, which I'm assuming you all do since you already filled out the membership application, uh, let me just walk through briefly the process of becoming a member here and explain what the, the first four-part process. First, you need to complete a membership application, which I think you've all already done. Second, you need to attend all four membership classes this morning and the next three Sundays. If for some reason you can't be at one of these, just please come speak to me and I'll try to get you the notes to the class and the recording of the class so that you can at least listen to it. It's important that you listen to all these because I don't want there to be confusion later on when there's expectations from us that you weren't here for. We're not going to call you to anything extra biblical, but we are going to call you to what the Bible calls you to. And so I think there's a lot of confusion in the church today as to what that is. People have a very low view of church membership, and so it's important that you understand what the Bible teaches about this issue. And then third, you need to uh, schedule a membership meeting with myself and the other leaders of the church once you've completed the class, or we'll, we'll contact you about that. And then if everything goes well in that meeting, there's no red flags, you'll be approved for membership, and then we'll formally introduce you and welcome you into the congregation on a Sunday morning after service. So that's a brief overview of what the membership process looks like. If you have any questions as we're going through this class, I would ask you just maybe to jot them down and save them for the end. I'll try to save time at the end of each of these classes so that you could ask the questions, but there's a lot of material to cover. so. I'd like to try to get through it all at first, and then we can take care of any questions towards the end. And let me just say that if you're not familiar with our website, it's a very helpful resource. There's far more information on our website. Um, it covers far more extensively than what I'm going to be able to cover in this four-week membership class. So if you're looking for more information about what we believe and why we believe it, or what we do and why we do it. It's pretty much all there on our website. So I'd strongly encourage you to familiarize yourself with that, gbcplantation.org. Well, that basically covers it then for the preliminaries. So for the rest of our time this morning, what I want to do then is look at a biblical basis for and the importance of local church membership. Now, in a day and age when commitment is such a rare commodity, it should come as no surprise that church membership is such a low priority to many, many believers. Sadly, it's not uncommon for Christians to move from one church to the next to the next, never really submitting themselves to the care of one group of elders, Hebrews 13, 17, and never really committing themselves to one body of believers, Hebrews 10, 24 to 25. 
But you see, to neglect or to refuse to join one local church as a formal member reflects, one, a gross misunderstanding of the believer's responsibility to the body of Christ, and two, it cuts one off from the tremendous benefits and blessings and opportunities that come as a result of being a member of a local church. Therefore, it's absolutely essential for every Christian to understand what church membership is and why it matters. You see, when a person gets saved, they instantly become a member of the universal body of Christ as they are baptized by Christ with the Spirit into the one body of Christ, 1 Corinthians 12, 13. And because they're united to Christ and then to all other members of the body in this way, they're now qualified to become members of a local expression of that body. Because church membership is only for those who are genuinely born again, and is for all those who are genuinely born again. And so nobody should be a church member who's not a true member of Christ, and nobody should be a true member of Christ who's not a member of a local body. And so to become a member of a church then is essentially to repent, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, to be baptized by immersion as you publicly identify yourself with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, and as you publicly identify yourself with his body by formally committing yourself to an identifiable local body of believers who have joined together for specific divinely ordained purposes. What are those purposes? Well, they include one, receiving instruction, from gifted godly men as they faithfully preach and teach God's word so that positively you're instructed and built up in the truth and negatively you're protected from error. Two, singing to the Lord and to one another. Ephesians 5, 18-20, Colossians 3, 16. Three, serving and edifying one another through the proper use of each member's spiritual gifts. Romans 12, 3-8. 1 Corinthians 12, 4 to 31, 1 Peter 4, 10 to 11. And then four, sacrificially giving to support the local church as well as the global advancement of the gospel. 1 Corinthians 16, 2, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, 3 John 5 through 8. Five, participating in the ordinances of the Lord's Supper and believers' baptism by immersion. Luke 22, 19, 1 Corinthians 11, 17 to 34, Acts 2, 38 to 42, and then 6, proclaiming the gospel to those who are lost, Matthew 28, 18 to 20. In addition, when one becomes a member of a local church, they submit themselves to the care and the authority of the biblically qualified elders that God has placed over them in that local assembly. Now, you may be sitting here this morning saying, well, that's great, Matt, but where does the Bible ever explicitly say anything about church membership? I mean, nowhere are we ever explicitly commanded to become formal members of a local church. Well, that's true. But you see, while the Bible doesn't explicitly command us to become formal members of a local church, it's certainly implied, inferred, and illustrated all throughout the New Testament. And so for our purposes this morning, I want to look at five strands of evidence for local church membership. Five strands of evidence for local church membership. First, we're going to see the example of the early church. The example of the early church. Second, we're going to see the existence of church government. The existence of church government. 
Third, we're going to see the exercise of church discipline. The exercise of church discipline. Fourth, we're going to see the exhortations to mutual edification. The exhortations to mutual edification. And then fifth, we're going to see the explanation of the church as a body. The explanation of the church as a body. You have the example of the early church, the existence of church government, the exercise of church discipline, the exhortations to mutual edification, and the explanation of the church as a body. So let's look first at the example of the early church. You see, the early church coming to Christ was in part coming to the church. The idea of experiencing salvation without belonging to a local church was completely foreign to the New Testament. When individuals repented and believed in Christ, they were baptized and immediately added to the church. For example, Acts 2.41 says, So then those who had received the word were baptized, and that day were added about 3,000 souls. Added to what? To the church there in Jerusalem as a visible manifestation and expression of his invisible body on the earth. If you turn there in Acts chapter 2, he continues... Luke does to say in Acts 2.42, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, that is to gathering together corporately as a body to share spiritual and physical resources, to the breaking of bread, likely a reference to the Lord's table, and to prayer. And so Peter preaches on the day of Pentecost, people get saved, they repent, and what happens? They're immediately baptized and then added to, incorporated into the life of a local church where they're devoted to the apostles' teaching. This is really the Great Commission in action. What did Jesus say? Go and make disciples. How do you do that? By baptizing. Well, you, well what does baptism presuppose? Yeah, it presupposes a preaching of the gospel and somebody repenting and believing in response to the gospel. And then you baptize them in the name of the triune God. And then what does he say to do? He says, to teach them to obey all that I commanded. That doesn't happen in a weekend rally or in a six-week class somewhere. That's a lifetime thing when somebody is devoted to the life of the local church. Well, that's the exact thing you see happening in Acts 2. Peter preaches, people get saved, they baptize them, they incorporate them into the life of the local church, they devote themselves to the apostles' teaching, Acts 2.42, so that they're learning to obey all that Christ commanded. Verse 44, And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. Verse 46, day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord was adding to their number, that is the number of those in the Jerusalem church, day by day, those who were being saved. Acts 5.14 says, And all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women, were constantly added to their number. Acts 16.5 says, So the churches were being strengthened in the faith and were increasing in number daily. And so more than simply living out a private commitment to Christ, this meant joining together formally with other believers in a local assembly and devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer, as Acts 2.42 tells us. You see, we live in a day and age where somebody says, well, look, I have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, so don't ask me questions and don't get involved in my life. 
Well, that's true. You do have a personal relationship, but it's not a private relationship. That relationship is to be lived out in the context of a body of believers, and that's exactly what you see in the example of the early church. Notice the the epistles of the New Testament were written to churches, virtually all of them. In the case of a few written to individuals such as Philemon or Timothy and Titus, these individuals were leaders in local churches. Timothy in Ephesus, Titus over the churches at Crete there. And so the New Testament epistles themselves demonstrate that the Lord assumed that believers would be committed to a local assembly. There's also evidence in the New Testament that just as there was a list of widows eligible for financial support in particular churches, 1 Timothy 5.9, there may also have been a list of members that grew as people were saved. In fact, when a believer moved from one city to the next or was traveling from one place to the next, oftentimes letters of commendation were written. For example, in Acts 18.27, we read this, And when he, that is Apollos, wanted to go across to Achaia, the brethren encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome them. And so as Apollos went from his home church to the church at Achaia, he was sent with letters of commendation from his home church. Turn me to Romans chapter 16. Romans chapter 16. Notice what we read here in Romans 16.1. Paul writes, I commend to you our sister Phoebe. Now watch this. He gives a relative clause describing Phoebe. This is an adjective clause describing her who is a servant of the church which is at Sancria. Now, Sancria was a neighboring port city about six and a half miles east of Corinth where Paul wrote Romans, and the church there in Sancria was likely planted by the Corinthian church. But notice the text says here in Romans 16.1 that Phoebe was a known member and servant of that one particular local church there in Sancria. In other words, she wasn't like so many evangelical Christians in our day who are characterized by a rogue individualism. This autonomous individualism that wants to live out the Christian life independently of the life of the local church, independently of accountability from leaders, independently from accountability of other believers. Saying, look, I have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, therefore I don't need to go to church to be a Christian. I don't have to join a local church or serve a local church or submit to the elders of a local church or commit to the body of believers of a local church. It's me and Jesus and my Bible, and so I can do church anywhere, at the beach, at Starbucks, at home on the internet. No, she was not like so many evangelical Christians in our day who were characterized by this rogue individualism, nor was she characterized by church hopping and church shopping, where people go to one particular church on Sunday and to a particular parachurch Bible study on Monday and then to this particular church on Wednesday night for their Awana Kids Ministry and to this particular church on Friday for their women's ministry and they try this church this next Sunday dating all kinds of churches but never willing to marry just one local church where they make a whole-souled commitment to that church and its leaders and its members. They're unwilling to devote themselves to one church through thick and thin. Now, I understand that there's times when you may need to leave a church because it's not biblical in terms of its doctrine or its philosophy of ministry. I totally understand that. Or because you're relocating physically. But the issue is when we're unwilling to joyfully and sacrificially serve one local church, 
simply because they don't cater to all of our personal preferences or simply because it has imperfections? Well, that's every church. <laughs> simply because it's difficult or costly or inconvenient, simply because I'm not appreciated or recognized the way I want to be or I'm not elevated to the position I think I should have in the church. And there's something wrong with my heart at that point. Because remember, Christ served us in the gospel despite the difficulty, despite the inconvenience, despite the costliness, despite the fact that we were imperfect. And that's exactly Christ's commitment to an imperfect bride, the church. That was Phoebe as well. She was a known and committed member of that church there in Sincrea through thick and thin. Notice, a servant of the church, which is at Sincrea committed to that church in good times and bad. She didn't try to live out her Christianity apart from the life of the local church, nor did she try to live out her Christianity in a multitude of different churches where they all hold to different doctrinal positions and different philosophies of ministries. Now she was a committed member of one local church submitting herself to one group of elders and committing herself to one body of believers devoted to fully serving them through thick and thin regardless of the cost to self doesn't mean you can't have fellowship with people from other churches. You certainly can and should, but it's you're committed to one flock, using your gifts to build up that particular body, submitting to that one particular group of leaders. Turn me to Colossians chapter 4. Colossians chapter 4. Notice in Colossians 4 verses 9 and 10, Paul writes this, And with Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, watch this, who is one of your number, or one of you. In other words, Onesimus was a known member of the church there in Colossae. He was not a lone ranger, it's me and Jesus kind of Christianity, who didn't attend church, nor was he a church hopper or shopper. He was a committed member of one local church, the church there in Colossae. Notice we see the same thing in verse 12 with Epaphras. Epaphras, who is one of your number. A bondslave of Jesus Christ sends his greetings, always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers that you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. You know, Epaphras was a committed member of one local church, the church of Colossae. He labored to the point of exhaustion to serve that church, to pray for that church. Text says he's one of your number, one of you. In other words, he belongs to this local church. He's committed to this local church and its people. In the book of Acts, much of the terminology fits only with the concept of formal church membership. Phrases such as the whole congregation, Acts 6.5, the church in Jerusalem, Acts 8.1, the disciples in Jerusalem, Acts 9.26, in every church, appoint elders, Acts 14.23, the whole church of Jerusalem, Acts 15.17, the elders of the church in Ephesus, Acts 20, verse 17, all of those suggest recognizable church membership with well-defined boundaries. And so the first strand of evidence for local church membership is the example of the early church. As people were saved, they were immediately baptized and added to the church. In other words, they were committed members of one local church, just like Phoebe and Sincrea and Onesimus and Epaphras and Colossae where they continually devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, to prayer, submitting themselves to one group of elders and committing themselves to one body of believers devoted to serving that body. Well, the second strand of evidence for local church membership 
not only the example of the early church, but secondly, the existence of church government. The existence of church government. You see, church membership is implied in the way that the New Testament requires elders to care for the flock of God allotted to their charge. Of course, elders can extend their love to anyone and everyone and should within the limits of their ability, but the Bible's clear that elders have a special responsibility and care for a specific group of people. Namely, a group of church members that have been sovereignly allotted to their charge. Turn with me to Acts 20, verse 28, so you can see this. Acts 20, verse 28. This is Paul's farewell address to the elders of the church there in Ephesus. And notice what he says in Acts 20, verse 28. Paul tells the elders how to care for their flock. He says, be on guard for yourselves, first and foremost, personally, and then for all the flock, watch this, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. And this verse doesn't say that elders cannot visit unbelievers or those who are not yet members, but it does make clear that their first and primary responsibility is to a particular flock, a particular group of people over whom the text says the Holy Spirit has made them overseers. In this case, it was the members of the church there in Ephesus. That was the particular group that these elders were responsible for. They weren't responsible for the believers in the churches over here and over there, but of the church that the Holy Spirit had made them an overseer of, the church at Ephesus. But the question is, how do we, as, so the question then is, how do we as leaders know who the flock is that the Holy Spirit has made us overseers of? Who are we as elders and pastors responsible for? For whom will we give an account to God on the last day? Is it every single person that just happens to visit Grace Bible Church Plantation one time? Is it the person that only comes on Easter and Christmas? Is it the person that comes once a month, twice a month, three times a month? Is it the person who's just committed to gathering every time the church is gathering? How do I know? The only way to know is formal church membership. Turn me to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5, because Peter gets even more explicit here. First Peter 5, starting in verse 2, Peter gives a charge here to the elders there. And he says, shepherd the flock of God, watch this, among you, that right there just nullifies this whole idea of flat screen pastors that are piped into a different location. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet is lording it over those, watch this, allotted to your charge. Tan Claron in the Greek, those whom God has sovereignly allotted to your charge and appointed to your care. That phrase there in verse 3, those allotted to your charge, literally means your portion or your lot. It implies that the elders know who they are responsible for. This is just another way of talking about church membership. If a person doesn't want to be held accountable by a group of elders or to be the special focus of the care of a group of elders, then they're going to resist the idea of church membership. And they'll resist God's appointed way for them to be protected and for them to grow in their Christian life. 
You see, the consistent pattern throughout the New Testament is that every local church is to be governed by a plurality of morally, doctrinally, and ministerially qualified elders who are responsible for overseeing the flock. And the specific duties given to these elders presupposes a clearly defined group of church members who are under their care. Now those responsibilities clearly require that there is to be a distinguishable, mutually understood membership in the local church. I mean, think about it. Elders can only shepherd the people and give an account to God for their spiritual well-being if they know who those people are. They can only provide oversight if they know those for whom they're overseeing and for whom they're responsible. And they can only fulfill their duty to shepherd the flock if they know who is a part of the flock and who isn't. The elders of a church are not responsible for the spiritual well-being of the people of the church down the road or for every individual who just happens to visit the church or who happens to attend sporadically. Rather, they're responsible to shepherd those who have submitted themselves to the care and authority of the elders, and this is done, again, through formal church membership. Conversely, Scripture teaches that believers are to submit to their elders. Turn with me to Hebrews 13.17 so you can see this. Hebrews 13.17. The text says here, obey your leaders, personal pronoun, and submit to them. That is your leaders. Now the question for each believer then is, who are my personal leaders? Who are the leaders that I must obey and submit to? You see, the person who has refused to join a local church and to entrust themselves to the care and authority of the elders has no leaders to obey and submit to. And thus, obedience to Hebrews 13, 17 is impossible for that person. The person who does church at home on the internet cannot fulfill that command. The person that does church at 14 different churches cannot fill that command. To put it simply, this verse implies that every believer knows exactly who it is that they must submit to, which in turn assumes clearly defined church membership. And so obviously some kind of expressed willingness or covenant or agreement or commitment, that is church membership, has to precede a person's submission to a group of elders. They're saying, yes, we agree with the doctrine and practice of this church and in good conscience we want to joyfully put ourselves under the care and protection of this particular group of leaders. And consider the way the New Testament talks about the relationship of the church to our leaders. Look at Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders. Not someone else's leaders, but your leaders. You're not responsible to submit to Joel Osteen. The assumption is that you have one group of elders to submit to. And you know specifically who they are. And submit to them. You're not to submit to the elders of some other church, but to the leaders of the one local church that you've committed to through formal local church membership. And then the writer gives the reason why we must obey our leaders and submit to them for or because they are keeping watch over your souls, personal pronoun. They're not keeping watch over everyone's souls. The people of the church down the block, I'm not keeping watch over souls that I've never met in foreign countries that are believers. But of your souls, you who have committed yourself to the leadership of this particular church through formal membership. The writer goes on to say, these elders will have to give an account for your soul. They will give an account specifically for your soul. 
You who have committed to formal membership in this local church, not for someone else's soul who just happens to visit the church periodically, but is unwilling to commit themselves to the leadership through formal church membership. And let me just say also that just as bad as the person who refuses to become a church member is the person who attends several different churches where the elders of each church have no idea what that person is being taught in the other churches. And therefore, the elders have no way to effectively shepherd their souls or protect them from harm and error. You go to four different churches, you go to Bible studies in different churches, I can't protect you. Because I don't know what you're being taught there. I can't possibly try to filter everything you're being taught in all these different places. And so the first strand of evidence for local church membership is the example of the early church. The second is the existence of church government, the submission of the church members to their clearly defined leaders. That leads us to the third strand of evidence for local church membership, which is the exercise of church discipline. The exercise of church discipline. Turn me to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. Church membership is implied by the way the church is supposed to discipline its members. Notice Jesus says in Matthew 18, 15, If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But, contrast, unfortunately, if he doesn't respond, if he doesn't listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. And so here in Matthew 18, verses 15 to 17, Jesus outlines the way a church is to seek the restoration of a believer who has fallen into sin. And notice he outlines here a four-step process commonly known as church discipline or church restoration. First, when a brother sins, he's to be confronted privately by a single individual, verse 15. If that person refuses to repent, the individual who confronted him is to now take two or three other believers along to confront him again, verse 16. If the sinning brother refuses to listen to the two or three, it's implied here that the leadership is to be informed and after attempts to call the person to repentance by the leadership fail, the leadership now is to tell the entire church so that the church can pray for this individual and pursue this individual, calling them to repentance, verse 17. If there's still no repentance on the part of the individual, the final step then is to put that person out of the assembly, verse 17. It's a very sober process. But think about it. If there's no formal church membership, how can you define the group called the church that will take up this sensitive and weighty matter? of exhorting the unrepentant person and finally rendering a judgment about his standing in the community. I mean, it's hard to believe that just anyone who happened to show up at that church on that Sunday morning claiming to be a Christian could be a part of such a gathering. Surely the church must be a definable group to handle such a weighty matter. You know who you mean when you tell it to the church. Church memberships also implied by the simple fact that excommunication even exists. Paul implies this in 1 Corinthians 5, verses 12 to 13, where he deals with the necessity of putting someone out of the church, the immoral brother there. He says, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? That's not my job. Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges. And then he commands them, Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. There's two implications there. One 
is that there's an in-church group and an outside of the church group. Being in the church is definable. The other implication is that a person can be removed from being in the church. Such a formal removal would not be possible if there's no such thing as formal church membership to be removed from, clearly defining who is an accountable part of this body and who is not. And so the exercise of church discipline, according to Matthew 18 and other passages like 1 Corinthians 5, 1 to 13, 2 Thessalonians 3, 6 to 15, 1 Timothy 5.20, Titus 3.10-11, presuppose that the elders of a church know who their members are. For example, the elders of Grace Bible Church have Plantation have neither the responsibility nor the authority to discipline a member of the church down the street. I don't go to the Mormon church and discipline people out of that church. Sadly, the widespread lack of understanding of church membership has made it necessary for our elders to discipline not only formal members, but also those who regularly attend this body when they're not living in conformity to the will of God as revealed in the Word of God. However, the Bible's teaching on church discipline assumes church membership. And so the first strand of evidence for local church membership is the example of the early church. Second is the existence of church government. Again, the submission of the church members to their clearly defined leaders. Third is the exercise of church discipline. Well, fourth, that brings us now to the fourth strand for local church membership, namely the exhortations to mutual edification. The exhortations to mutual edification. You see, the New Testament teaches that the church is the body of Christ and that God has called every member to a life devoted to the growth of that body. In other words, Scripture exhorts all believers to edify the other members of the body by practicing the one another's of the New Testament and exercising their spiritual gifts to build up the body. And so church membership is really just one way in which God has ordained for the believer to give himself to the Lord and to fellow believers and to get from them that which is necessary for spiritual edification. And mutual edification can only take place in the context of the corporate body of Christ. It doesn't happen at home on the internet. And so exhortations to this kind of ministry presuppose that believers have committed themselves to other believers in a specific local assembly. Church membership is simply the formal way to make that commitment. Listen, it's tough to bear one another's burdens when one, you don't even know one another, and two, you don't even know what one another's burdens are. See, the person that church hops and goes to this church this week and that church, how does he get to know anybody and how does he know what their burdens are so that he can bear them? The person that watches the sermon on the internet and then just checks out and logs out, how does he know the burdens of people and how does he know how to bear them? You see, the implication is that you have formally committed yourself to one group of believers to gather as often as they're gathering for instruction and mutual edification so that you can get intimately involved in one another's lives and thus effectively minister to one another and be ministered to. Knowing one another's burdens and how to bear them. Knowing one another's struggles and how to exhort them and pray for them and encourage them in the truth, etc. That's virtually impossible to do apart from church membership. And so, listen, you can be a member of a local church and not be a Christian. That happens at times. We're not omniscient. We can't read people's hearts. We can only go on professions. But it's highly doubtful that you can be a Christian and not be a committed member of a local church. That's very clear from the New Testament. 
Listen, it's virtually impossible to fulfill all of the one another commands throughout the New Testament if you're not a committed member of one local church. For example, think about the following commands that are given to each of us as believers and ask yourself, how am I going to faithfully fulfill these commands apart from membership in one local church? John 13.34 and John 15.12, Jesus says we're to love one another. In Romans 12.10, Paul says that we're to be devoted to one another in brotherly love. In Romans 12.16, Paul says that we're to be of the same mind toward one another. In Romans 14.13, Paul says that we're not to judge one another, but rather, Romans 14.19, to pursue the things which make for peace in the building up of one another. In Romans 15.7, Paul says that we're to accept one another. In Romans 15.14, Paul says that we're to admonish one another. In Romans 16.16, he says that we're to greet one another. In Galatians 6.2, he says that we're to bear one another's burdens. Ephesians 4.32, he says that we're to be kind to one another. Philippians 2.3, he says that we're to regard one another as more important than ourselves, not looking out merely for our own interests, but the interest of others. In Colossians 3.13, he says that we're to bear with one another and forgive each other. In Colossians 3.16, he says that we're to admonish one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Talking about corporate worship and 1 Thessalonians 4.18, he says that we're to comfort one another. 1 Thessalonians 5.11, he says that we're to encourage one another. In 1 Thessalonians 5.13, he says that we're to live at peace with one another. In 1 Thessalonians 5.15, he says we're not to repay evil for evil, but we're to seek what is good for one another. In Hebrews 3.13, the writer says that we're to encourage one another day after day, as long as it's called today, so that none of us are hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Sin's deceitful, folks. It promises pleasure, but is only going to bring pain. And one of the antidotes to being deceived and ultimately hardened by sin is mutual edification and encouragement in the truth. That's the antidote to apostasy in the context of Hebrews. Hebrews 10.24, the writer says that we're to consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. In Hebrews 10.25, the writer says that we're not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together, as has become the habit of some, but instead we're to encourage one another all the more until, as we see the day of Christ's return drawing near. 1 Peter 1.22, 1 Peter 4.8, we're to fervently love one another from the heart. 1 Peter 4.9, we're to be hospitable to one another without complaint. 1 Peter 4.10 says that we're to employ our gifts in serving one another. 1 Peter 5.5 says that we're to clothe ourselves with humility towards one another. And then in 1 John 3.11, 3.23, 4.7, 4.11, 2 John 1.5, John says that we're to love one another. Now, if you're not a member of one local church, how in the world are you possibly going to fulfill faithfully all of those commands? It's virtually impossible, right? And to effectively and faithfully employ your spiritual gifts to build up the members of the local church. It's also impossible to fulfill other mandates of Scripture like joyfully submitting to the elders, Hebrews 13, 17, if you're not a member of a local church. See, one of the marks of an authentic Christian is a genuine love for the brethren. That's very clear in 1 John and a commitment to gather with them when they're gathering for corporate worship, teaching, instruction, mutual edification, fellowship, and service. True believers know their own hearts, Jeremiah 17, 9, the dangers of apostasy, Hebrews 3, 12 to 14, 
the constant need for personal accountability and sound biblical teaching in their life, and thus they're quick to avail themselves to God's ordained means of grace through formal membership in one local church. Listen, the New Testament knows absolutely nothing about an authentic Christian who is not a committed member of a local church body where they're actively serving, sacrificially giving, and joyfully submitting to the preaching of the Word of God and to the elders of that local church as they're faithful to that Word. And so the first strand of evidence for local church membership, the example of the early church, Second, the existence of church, mem- uh, church government. Third, the exercise of church discipline. Fourth, the exhortation and mutual edification. And fifth and finally, the explanation of the church as a body. The explanation of the church as a body. You see, local church membership is implied in the metaphor of the body in 1 Corinthians 12, verses 12 to 31. The original meaning of the word member here is member of a body like a hand or a foot or an eye or an ear. That's the imagery behind that word member in the text. And so Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 12, just as the body, that is the physical body, is one and has many members like hands, feet, eyes, ears, and all the members of the physical body, though many, are one body, he says, so it is with Christ, that is, so it is with Christ's body. And so he's drawing a comparison here between the physical body and the spiritual body of Christ. He says there's many members on your physical body, but they're all part of one body. Well, there's many members of a local church body, but they're all part of that one local church body. There's an, a unity and an organic relationship implied in the imagery of the body. There's something strange and very unnatural about a hand trying to attach itself to my body without being a part of my body or a hand trying to attach itself to multiple bodies. Well, in the same way, there's something strange and unnatural about a Christian attaching himself to a body of believers and not being a member of that particular body. Or a Christian being a member of several different bodies. You see, just as the operation of the human body depends upon the cooperation and dependence of its many members, one upon another, so also the body of Christ demands that kind of mutuality. Each member is not only related to Christ the head, but also to one another. They're members of one another, Romans 12.5. And so although the believer is taught to cast their cares upon the Lord, 1 Peter 5.7, this does not relieve them of the responsibility of sharing the cares of other believers. Listen, as one member of the human body cannot help but be affected by the condition of another, so the members of the body of Christ are to share with each other their suffering and rejoicing. I mean, think about it. When you have a pain in your physical body, every member of your body is working in tandem and in unison to bring relief to that pain, right? There's no opposition between the members. There's many, but you're all working towards one unified goal. When one part of you is rejoicing, every part of you is rejoicing. He says that's the way it is in the church. If there's one member that's hurting... It should affect every member of the body because we're one body. And we should all be hurting. We should all be grieving for that member. If there's one member rejoicing, we should all be rejoicing. Sadly, you see just the opposite. Many times somebody is rejoicing and we're resenting because we're jealous or envious. Sadly, somebody's grieving or hurting and we're totally indifferent to them. But the whole imagery of this, this metaphor is assuming that there is formal church membership. There is one particular local body 
but it has many members of that body and they're in cooperation and in tandem and in unison with one another. There are no separate individuals in the church, which is his body. And so despite the fact that there's no explicit command regarding church membership in the New Testament, it's clearly implied, inferred, and illustrated throughout the New Testament. This morning we've seen five strands of evidence for local church membership. The example of the early church, the existence of church government, the exercise of church discipline, the exhortation to mutual edification, the explanation that church is a body. And so that is the biblical basis for church membership. But now, very briefly, I just want to look at the importance of local church membership. You see, local church membership is important for several reasons, but let me just give you two of them very briefly. Number one, because it provides mutual accountability and protection for you from both moral and doctrinal error as well as total apostasy. This is implied in many different texts, but I just want you to look briefly at Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. Notice, the writer of Hebrews says, starting in Hebrews 10.19, Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near constantly and continually and corporately, with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Now here, in this particular context, these are Jewish believers tempted to abandon their commitment to the gospel either because of pressure from their family or persecution from the government. So what's the antidote to relinquishing our grip on the gospel and apostatizing as is happening wholesale throughout the book of Hebrews. Verse 24. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. You want to be protected from error, from apostasy? It happens through the life of the local church and the mutual edification and encouragement and accountability. Notice verse 26. He gives an explanation of why it's so important to constantly gather with other believers. To not forsake the assembling. For, because if we go on sinning without or willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who set aside the law of Moses with, dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Well, how can we be protected from apostasy and ultimately being judged by the living God? The mutual edification and accountability and encouragement and protection that comes through the body of Christ. And so why is church membership important? Because it provides mutual accountability and protection from both moral and doctrinal error as well as total apostasy. Second, because it provides mutual edification as we give and receive what we need to grow in Christ-like holiness as the body is built up and strengthened. 
provides mutual edification as we give and receive what we need to grow in Christ-like holiness as the body is built up and strengthened. Look at Ephesians 4, 11 to 16, and then we'll finish. Ephesians 4, 11 to 16, Paul writes this, And he, Christ, gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers. Why? Why were these gifted, godly men given by Christ as gifts to the church? For the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. Well, how long do we need gifted, godly men equipping us so that we are effective in using our gifts to build up and bless and serve the body? Verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith, until we're all united in our understanding of doctrine and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of of Christ. So here's how long you need gifted godly men pouring into you and equipping you so that you can effectively do the work of the ministry until you're perfectly conformed to the image of Christ. Anybody there yet? Not me. <laughs> Verse 14, here's another reason why it's important to have gifted godly men teaching you the word of God. As a result, verse 14, we are no longer to be children, and what are children like? He says, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. In other words, the church membership is important because it protects you from error. Verse 15, it also equips you. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all respects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies. Every member of the body has a responsibility. What every joint supplies according to the proper working, watch this, of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. When every member is not doing their part, the body suffers. Why is church membership important? Because it provides mutual edification as we give and receive what we need to grow in Christ-like holiness and as the body is built up and strengthened. So this morning we've seen the biblical basis for and also the importance of local church membership. Now let me just say in conclusion that living out a commitment to a local church involves many responsibilities, exemplifying a godly lifestyle, exercising one's spiritual gifts and diligent service, contributing financially to the work of the ministry, giving and receiving admonition with meekness and in love, and joyfully submitting to the leadership of the church and faithfully participating in corporate worship. Much is expected, but much is at stake. For only when every believer is faithful to this kind of commitment to Christ's bride, the church, is the church able to live up to her calling as Christ's representatives here on earth. So to put it simply, membership matters. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the clarity of your word. I know there's so much confusion on this issue in our day, and I pray that you would just continue to, by the power of your spirit, take your word and deeply embed it in our hearts. Continue to cultivate within us biblical conviction on the importance of the local church and the need for us to be committed to the local church, knowing that it's your ordained means of blessing and protection in our lives. And it's the one institution that you've ordained to build and to bless. 
one institution you died for, the one institution that you've ordained to manifest your wisdom and power through, and the one institution that you'll be wedded to for all eternity. May we have the same commitment to your bride, the church, that you do. For your glory we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.